You may know about deep brain stimulation for movement disorders, but how about its utilization in depression, addiction, and chronic pain? Could your patients be benefiting? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bruno Gallo, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the University of Miami. Dr. Gallo's expertise is deep brain stimulation and movement disorders. He is also Director of Intraoperative Monitoring for Jackson Memorial Hospital's operating rooms. He is an author and researcher in his own right with many publications and studies. And he's here today to discuss something that many of us don't know very much about, the state of the art of deep brain stimulation and the evidence for its varied use in many areas of neurology. Welcome, Dr. Gallo, to ReachMD. Thanks, Dr. Johnson. I appreciate it. It's a real pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did an epilepsy fellowship lead you into deep brain stimulation? Well, at the time in the 1990s, the kind of surgical procedures that were being done for different neurologic disorders involved neurophysiologists in the operating room, and those were ablative procedures where you were destroying portions of the brain. And that's kind of what I was doing during my training. After graduation, I joined a uh, private practice where there were neurologists and neurosurgeons, and one of the neurosurgeons had considerable expertise as a functional neurosurgeon and asked me to get a little bit more involved, and uh, that just segued wonderfully into taking my neurophysiology training into the operating room and segueing into deep brain stimulation when it became first available in 1997 uh, for the treatment of chest tremors. So this was all just breaking out then, correct? Yes, it was, yeah. What is deep brain stimulation and how does it work? Deep brain stimulation was a fortuitous discovery that came about in the mid-1980s through a French neurosurgeon named Aline Benabid. At that time, he was performing these ablative neurosurgical procedures. Dr. Benabid, from my understanding, is also a biomechanical or bioelectrical engineer, and he, to confirm placement of the electrode before he destroyed portions of the brain, would attach a battery and stimulate these structures deep in the brain and notice that the symptoms would improve. Then he would destroy that portion of the brain and considered, well, if I could stimulate these deep structures in the brain constantly, I wouldn't have to destroy anything. And from there on, deep brain stimulation was born. Approved in Europe and the EU in the late 1980s, it would be another 10 years before we would get it in the U.S., So what's the mechanics of it? What happens in the operating room and who puts them in? The operating room team, and that's really what you're looking for when you want to refer a patient or get a patient into a deep brain stimulation protocol, is composed of a neurologist, not necessarily a neurophysiologist, but ideally a neurophysiologist or a neurologist, a neurosurgeon, a functionally trained neurosurgeon, as well as all the supportive staff that result in the patient being screened and qualified for surgery. That includes psychiatrists, neuropsychologists, and ancillary personnel. In the operating room, the role of the neurologist is to perform the microelectrode recordings by advancing a thin tungsten electrode through the brain and listening for the recording of cell-firing patterns in the brain, confirming placement of the ultimate larger electrode called the macroelectrode performed by the neurosurgeon. And then ultimately when that's placed appropriately, the neurosurgeon tunnels and plants the pulse generator. And where is the pulse generator installed? The battery pack or the pulse generator is similar. It's almost identical to a pacemaker. It is emplaced in a pacemaker pocket infraclavicularly, usually on the ipsilateral side of the uh, brain that we're operating on. What is your role post-op? How long do you take to program or correct the programming after the surgery is done? So the surgery is completed. The patients are kept in hospital for 24 hours. Discharged the following day, the system, the apparatus is off, and it's kept off for four weeks. In practice, 
I used to keep it off for a little bit longer. In the EU, they turn the devices on the same day or the following day postoperatively. I like waiting four weeks because I like the brain to heal before I try to transmit electrical uh, impulses and create electrical fields in the brain. I like the brain to heal. If there's more than one pass through the different structures, there's very little, if any, bleeding, but you know, there's a lot of, uh, of tissue disruption, and then you get to turn it on. Because I'm an integral part of the team and because this particular procedure is a lot like real estate where it's all about location, location, <laughs> location. You want to make sure that this is in the right place. If it's in the right place, then my job is very, very easy. And since I'm involved in the placement, it's uh, simple to do the programming. One month later, I turn the device on for the first time, and then I'll see the patients at monthly intervals for about three months. It takes anywhere between six to 12 months to optimally program the patients to get the best effect from it. Some patients are exceptions to the rule. They do very, very well early on. Others take uh, the full six to 12 months. Once it's properly programmed, the follow-up uh, visits are very easy. It's twice a year, just like your dentist. Okay, so for us non-neurologists, what are you doing for the programming? Is it a question of adjusting voltage? Because the electrodes are already in place. So the electrodes are in place, and once I pick the optimal electrode, that seldom, if ever, changes. It just doesn't. So the parameters that I adjust in the office include voltage. If it's a deep brain stimulator, it also includes pulse width the duration of each stimulus in microseconds. It also includes frequency, how many stimuli a patient receives per second. And then, of course, the patients have the options of turning the devices on and off. I make sure that most of my patients always keep the devices on 24 hours a day, depending on the disease as well that we're treating. Some patients are allowed to turn them off at night and turn them back on in the mornings. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Bruno Gallo from the University of Miami. We're discussing deep brain stimulation, new and evolving roles. So I understand now that deep brain stimulation is effective in many different disease states. Tell us a little bit about that and what has shown the most promise and what has our FDA actually approved? Well, let's start with the last part. The FDA approved in 1997 the use of a deep brain stimulation for the treatment of tremor, essential tremor, familial or non-familial tremor. Now, Clinicians were using it for Parkinsonian tremors as well under that same indication. And it wouldn't be until February of 2002 that it would be approved for the treatment of Parkinson's disease. Shortly thereafter, FDA approval showed up for the treatment of dystonias, genetic dystonias or segmental dystonias, focal dystonias, generalized dystonias. And currently, there are clinical trials and investigations being done to have deep brain stimulation approved for depression. Obsessive compulsive disorders has received an FDA waiver so that on a case-by-case basis, you can actually have it implanted in your patients and reimbursed through the approval process through the FDA. The indications for deep brain stimulation are as varied as there are targets in the brain. So there are current trials being done for the treatment of Tourette's. There are trials being done for epilepsy, as well as other indications. Now, is this only being done in large centers with a strong neurosurgical base? The answer is no. This can be done in private practice, and I had been doing it for five years in private practice. In fact, it was that expertise that resulted in my being invited to join the faculty in 2003 at the University of Miami. But the perfect setting is to have a real team approach. So it can be done in private practice, but you want neurologists and neurosurgeons to work together, as well as the ancillary staff that I'd mentioned earlier. Larger university centers have a greater ease at doing this. 
and placing the electrodes properly so that you get optimal placement of these devices. The tremor of Parkinson's, it's considered effective, right? Very much so. In fact, in Parkinson's disease, the symptoms that most improve are tremors, resting tremors, whether they're dopamine-responsive tremors or not, dyskinesias. Those are those wild, flailing, abnormal, asymmetric, uncontrollable movements of the arms, the legs, the head, the axial, as well as appendicular skeleton, the kind of things that everyone has seen on television with either the former Attorney General Janet Reno or Michael J. Fox. Dystonias, which are slow, prolonged, painful muscular contractions that can deform an articulation or a joint, freezing of gait, as well as on time. It does increase on time. What I tell all my patients are that only those symptoms that are responsive to the medicines for your Parkinson's disease are going to improve with deep brain stimulation. So that would lead to these patients, in some cases, being able to decrease their medications? It's not the role of surgery to decrease medications, although it's an attractive feature. And the answer is yes, many patients will have a reduction in medications. And so for a while, they actually enjoy reducing the total amount of dopamine that they take a day in divided doses. And that's adjusted accordingly at the outpatient programming visits. What are you most excited about in the role of deep brain stimulation, even if it's not totally there? What has you most excited? What keeps me most interested in this particular field and keeps me happy uh, coming to work every single day is the fact that the sky's the limit at this point. We are riding the crest of the wave of new things with deep brain stimulation at this point, and the future holds a lot of different indications. Some might be a little bit more of an impressive result than other areas. For instance, under the approved indications, essential tremors are just very rewarding to treat. These patients come off all medications for their treatment of tremors, so they no longer feel the tiredness, the lethargy, the cognitive effects of the medicines that they're taking, and have complete tremor control to where they become independent with their activities of daily life. In the Parkinson population, it's also wonderfully received. Although this chronic, progressive, and degenerative disease inexorably continues. Remember, Mm -hmm. deep brain stimulation doesn't cure. It treats a symptom. Yeah, it doesn't slow the arrest of the disease. Dystonias are great. These patients receive a considerable amount of relief from the dystonias that they get. Looking to the future, I have great hopes of deep brain stimulation in the treatment of epilepsy. In the December 2008 meeting of the American Epilepsy Society that was held in Seattle, there was very impressive data presented for a seminal trial that was recently completed for the treatment of epilepsy using deep brain stimulation, with the target being the anterior nucleus of the thalamus. I think that We just haven't run out of targets yet. We've got a lot of options for patients in the future. What about phantom limb pain? Deep brain stimulation in the use of pain syndromes is not new. It's not indicated, but it's been used for a considerable amount of time ever since the technology first uh, appeared. The target of choice is the periaqueductal gray. And so for things like phantom limb pains, for things like thalamic pain syndromes. The technology has been used with some considerable promise. Are we going to see trials done and will we get enough of an interest to have it approved and indicated? No. I think that it's a case-by-case basis. There are some centers, some of the busiest centers for pain syndromes using deep brain stimulation in the world are in London at Oxford. So there's a lot of data coming out of those particular centers, but the numbers of patients in each of the trials is very small. What about the risks of the procedure? Well, again, this is why sometimes it's best to do this at large university centers. In the United States, and I'll give you U.S. numbers only, the complication rates from the procedure itself across the board is around 2 to 2.4%. 
and the complications include, but are not limited to, death, seizures, hemorrhage, stroke, infection, a failure of the device to work, a break in the wire, the extension or the lead, and a necessity to replace the entire apparatus. Happily, at the University of Miami, at my center, with now well over 300 cases at this particular center, our complication rates are well under the 2 to 2 to 2.4% national. You know, most of those complications you mentioned are really there for most surgical or invasive procedures. But what about neuropsychiatric side effects? Do they occur? Those neuropsychiatric side effects and the potential for deep brain stimulation to actually worsen things like cognition, memory, forgetfulness are always there. It's one of the reasons why we are so diligent at screening patients. Part of the things that we do in the screening of these individuals is a comprehensive neuropsychological battery. We want to make sure that we can tease out and find those individuals that have a considerable amount of anxiety, depression, dementia. We don't want to make those things worse. Also, the programming parameters themselves can produce an affective problem in patients, and those are easy to fix. You just change the programming parameters post-operatively, but we want to pick the very, very best candidates that are going to reap the highest reward from the surgical procedure itself with the smallest amount of risk. You know, you want to take patients into the operating room that are good operative candidates as well. Isn't this calling into play really everything we've always been supposing about neuroanatomy and the brain? We're testing everything out, really, aren't we, when we implant these electrodes? One of the greatest things that came out of the 1990s, which was the decade of the brain, was a considerable amount of understanding of the basal ganglia. And as a result, we are now using deep brain stimulation to learn even more from the neurophysiology that we got from the 1990s. And that plays out every single day that uh, I do part of the programming for these patients. So the answer is yes. It's spectacular to be able to do that. We think, and I think we're doing this in a very naive fashion, that what we're doing is essentially creating an electric field. That electric field inhibits the firing of cells, and that has a regional effect to help some of the symptoms. That's not true. Limousin and her group in France have long published data, functional neuroimaging data, that shows that stimulation of these small little structures deep in the brain have widespread effects to cortical areas that are far from where the stimulation takes place. So in essence, if you were to ask me, how does deep brain stimulation work? I'm going to give you an answer of, I really don't know, but the theories include, and then there's just a bevy or long list. Dr. Gallo, you've been a great guest. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. It was my pleasure. Our thanks today to Dr. Bruno Gallo from the University of Miami. We have been discussing the evolving role of deep brain stimulation. I am Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachXM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and listen to our entire library of podcasts. Thank you for listening.